according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Hebrews, but for the first time, we're going to start chapter 7. So join me, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 7. We uh, wrapped up chapter 6 a week ago, and... Uh, we're ready now to launch into what is one of my favorite chapters. I tell you, I think if I have to put them in order, chapter 10 is the top of my list. My favorite chapter is chapter 10. My favorite book is the book of Hebrews, but chapter 10 just lays it out there. If I had to pick a close second behind chapter 10, it would be chapter 7, because this takes us now to the information on Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, who has just one brief chapter in the Old Testament, gets expanded here in a very remarkable way, in a way that we can uh, identify with, a way that we can apply and consider when it comes to our own calling in Christ. And so chapter 7, really 7, 8, 9, 10, this stretch right here, this is, uh, this is the kickoff to the meat of the book of Hebrews. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. This is who the chapter is about. So we're going to have some fun with it here this morning. Before we do, let's take a moment for silent prayer to ask the Father to, to bless our study. And we do this every time because you don't want to sit here in carnality. If, uh, if something on the drive down here made you mad, well, then confess that, you know, or, or something. Or you walked in this morning and saw that the pastor's starting his winter beard again, and that's got you mad. Well, then confess that, all right, and to make sure you're in fellowship as the Word of God goes forth and we're equipped to handle eternal truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth and that in your grace we can study truth. Father, and here we are presenting ourselves before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness. The book of Hebrews gives warning that Melchizedek studies are not easy and that uh, some uh, folks can't handle Melchizedek studies. And yet here we are. This is our chapter. This is the material. We call upon you to equip us in this study today. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Really, it is uh, the third time now that Melchizedek has been mentioned. The third mention of the order of Melchizedek. And it's called the order several times, the order of Melchizedek. And it refers to that uh, type or that style or that uh, classification of priesthood. It's different than the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood that, that descends from Aaron. Uh, we have the Levitical priesthood, we have the Melchizedek priesthood. Each one is a separate order, okay? This is now the third mention of the order of Melchizedek, and it's too much for the author. <laughs> he just can't help himself under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he's composing this, this letter. So he overcame his reluctance, and he provided a Melchizedek discourse. And that's what we get here. And so just by way of reminder, if we peek back to chapter 5 and chapter 6, we'll see these things here. Uh, in, in Hebrews 5, with recognition of the high priest. And this uh, really comes, uh, verses 1 through 4, is talking about earthly high priests, such as Aaron or other earthly high priests. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's what high priests do. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided. I always like to raise my hand on that verse. That's me. Ignorant and misguided since he himself is also beset with weaknesses. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. Now that's going to be a big difference for Jesus, of course, because Jesus has no sins for himself to offer. But in normal human operations, the high priest does uh, have uh, sins for himself that he's got to uh, deal with. And it says, no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. And that's uh, the aspect on gifts and calling, that we don't call ourselves, he calls us. He calls the high priest to the high priestly ministry. So also Christ did not glorify himself. 
The Melchizedek priesthood is not one of self-glorification or self-magnification or exaltation of self as the exact opposite. Satan is the self-promoter. Satan is the one with the five I wills. Jesus is the one who humbled himself. Quite the opposite of Satan in his fall. Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews is is doing something very important that we do all the time. That's comparing scripture to scripture. That's taking you are my son from Psalm 2 and you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek from Psalm 110. And he is linking Psalm 2 with Psalm 110 in a very powerful way. And this is what we do when we exegete the text, when we compare Scripture to Scripture, when we classify various doctrines into their categories. That's huge. All right? And so we have expository Bible teaching chapter by chapter, but then we have categories of doctrine whereby we see the whole spectrum of the Word of God. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing right here. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so that's the first of the three references to Melchizedek here, the order of Melchizedek. Uh, It goes on, and we covered this when we were teaching in this chapter, but just uh, for review. In the days of his flesh, it's Jesus now, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. All right? And Jesus was not a, you know, a crybaby or a weak sister. Uh, the, the crying and tears, this is the fervent effectual prayer life of a mature believer under maximum angelic conflict, under maximum divine testing. And so we see it. He was heard. He prayed to the one able to save him, but choosing not to save him. Remember, the Father could have freed him from the cross. Could have. Chose not to. When Jesus was in the garden, he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass by me. Yet not my will, but thine be done. And the Father said, no, my will is for you to go to the cross. He was able to save him, but chose not to. That's key. If you've got a prayer thing you're wrestling with, and God's able to provide for that, but he may choose not to. Are you still going to serve him? Are you going to stay faithful? Or do you only serve him when he does nice things for you? See, you're like Job's wife. You're happy to get the good stuff. Do you curse him when he gives the adversity as well? Job said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. So he offered up these prayers. That's what a priest would do. He offers up prayers and supplications. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And so this process of undeserved suffering, this process of the Father answering no, helped to perfect him. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. He was already perfect to start with, but then he was perfected beyond that, as we looked at. And this is what qualified him, to be our Savior, not only to go to the cross, but to suffer ahead of the cross so that he would be qualified to be our Redeemer. The source of eternal salvation being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That's our second reference. It was the suffering that qualified him to do the work, and he now is appointed uh, according to the order of Melchizedek, right? Now, it's not the Levitical priesthood, He's not a descendant of Aaron. He's not qualified to be a Levitical priest. He's not qualified to be, because he's not a son of Aaron. He's from the tribe of Judah. And we're going to see that in chapter 7. It gets spelled out in plain terms in chapter 8 and chapter 9. It's evident if he was on earth, he couldn't be a priest at all because he's from Judah and there is nothing priestly in the the Judah uh, scriptures. And so he has to be a high priest of a different kind, of a different order. And that's why the Melchizedek doctrine is so significant. That's why we get chapter 7. So first mentioned in verse 6, second mentioned in verse 10, and then the lament that comes, the reluctance in 511. Concerning him, as concerning Melchizedek, we have much to say. We 
the author and his team. Again, it's a clue that there's a plurality there. Concerning Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now understand the Word of God. If you are saved, then part of your birthright as a believer is that you have a living human spirit, and your living human spirit is designed to apprehend the things of the Spirit of God. So when the Holy Spirit communicates the Word of God, you have a living human spirit, you can apprehend the Word of God normally. That's how it typically works. If you're carnal, then that'll cut you out from that, and you've got to get back in fellowship. If you're carnal, you can't take in doctrine. We get that. But if you're in, fe- in fellowship, you're not carnal, you're saved, you can understand the Word of God. Unless in certain realms of deep doctrine, in certain realms of, of the deep things of God, even though you may be not carnal, you're still, as it says here, dull of hearing dull of hearing. You see that expression? And way back, I don't remember what Sunday it was we taught this. I meant to look that up. But whatever Sunday it was we taught this, we taught the fact that dullness is one step short of hardness, right? Dullness of hearing is what leads to hardness of heart. And you don't want to get there, all right? This dullness of hearing, this lackadaisical attitude of doctrine, this, eh, you know, take it or leave it idea, this is not as the deer panteth for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee. All right? We should be panting. We should be lusting. We should be slavering over the Word of God. And if we just don't have the appetite we used to have, ask yourself, man, I used to be starving for this. I used to eat this up. I used to, every time the doors were open, I was there. Man, I was there first hour and second hour. I was there Sunday evening. I was there Wednesday night. Eh, any more these days, I'm kind of, you know, once a week, once a month, a couple times a month. If I miss one, eh, all right, there's another one. And that dullness of hearing, it's a warning. It is a warning. And he rebukes them here at the end of chapter 5. He says, because you've become so dull of hearing, you've actually regressed. You're back to needing milk again and not solid food. You should be past the, the breast milk, but you're still nursing. And you've gone back to that now. Solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good or evil. All right, so this is the, uh, this is the, the first two references. And in, the, in chapter 5, he was very reluctant to, uh, to, uh, to go there because the readers, he anticipated, they weren't going to have the appetite for it. They weren't ready for it. Well, guess what? Chapter 7, he's dealing with it. <laughs> All right, so ready or not, here it comes. Here comes the Melchizedek doctrine in, uh, in chapter 7. He overcomes his reluctance. The third mention comes here in, uh, in chapter 6 and verse 20. Uh, the hope that we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil. And that's powerful. Jesus died on the cross. The veil of the earthly temple was rent in two and he never went in there. No reason to go in there. No business going in there. The veil of the earthly temple was rent in two, but where did he go? He entered into heaven itself. And really, chapter 8 and chapter 9 are going to detail that for us, how he entered into heaven itself and uh, had to cleanse the heavenly temple with his blood. We'll talk about that coming up. So now, having become a, uh, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Third reference to Melchizedek now. And this one just, he can't help himself. He's going to launch into a whole Melchizedek discourse. And that's how we get the beginning now of chapter 7. But Jesus entered within the veil. He entered within the heavenly veil of the heavenly temple in the presence of the Father. He entered the heavenly veil, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. He entered the holy of holies in the heavenly places. And he did so as a forerunner not to be in there all by his lonesome, but to be in there with all of us, to be in there as a forerunner. Understand that the whole body of Christ is expected to follow, that the bride of Christ is expected to be with their Lord, that the ministry in the, of the Melchizedek priesthood in the heavenly holy of holies is not a one guy only, high priest only approach. That's what Aaron's was about. And Aaron, the only forerunner Aaron had was for when, his, when he died, then Eliezer could have a turn. <laughs> and then when Eliezer died, then his son could have a turn. 
And, and, and there was really no forerunner aspect of, of Aaron as a high priest except for the descendants that followed after each high priest died. Still, it was one at a time. He was a single, a single uh, you know, man operation, uh, the high priest by himself, year after year after year, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, he would go in there. Jesus goes in there as the forerunner, and we all enter with him. By the time we get to chapter 10, we find out that we all have confidence to enter within the veil, and we should be with him in our priesthood, and that's what it's designed to be. So this third mention of the order of Melchizedek. Now, the Genesis record is recounted and significant details are highlighted. So as we look at these first three verses, let me just read Hebrews 7 verses 1 through 3 without stopping, and then I'll go back and give you the details on this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of most high of the most high God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a, te- a tithe, a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, by translation of his city's name. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. That's the Melchizedek character that we're studying today. That's the Melchizedek character that's presented in the Genesis record. So the Genesis record is recounted and significant details are highlighted. If you've never read this, by the way, it's found in Genesis chapter 14, and we're going to turn there next. Genesis 14, and you're going to see where this is. So join me there. Otherwise, you talk about an obscure reference in something that is not uh, a big deal anywhere else in the Old Testament, anywhere else in the New Testament. Genesis 14, and we never see Melchizedek again anywhere else in the book of Genesis, or Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, anywhere else in the Torah, anywhere else in the law, or anywhere else in the, uh, the historical books. In fact, only one other time in the Old Testament, Psalm 110, does, is the word even show up. When Yahweh makes the promise, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Where did that come from? <laughs> so, Moses includes the Melchizedek story in Genesis, just one time in one chapter. David writes one verse in the Psalms, and you think, wow, that's obscure. But the book of Hebrews takes it and makes it center stage. The book of Hebrews takes it, teases it in chapter 5 and chapter 6, and then launches full scale into Melchizedek discourse in 7, 8, 9, and 10. All right? That's the that's the key issue of what we're dealing with here in the book of Hebrews. And so I, my prayer is for Austin Bible Church to get excited about our Melchizedek priesthood, to get excited about our position in Christ, the freedom and the access that we have within the veil that is His flesh, and the uh, prayer ministry that we have before, not a mercy seat, before the throne of grace. That's going to be a powerful impact for us individually, but also collectively as a local assembly. All right, Melchizedek. So Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. Now there's a context on this. The, uh, the, the slaughter of the kings, as we're told. And uh, the details on this come earlier. Um, this is a chapter in which, uh, well, one chapter previous in chapter 13, when uh, Lot's servants were arguing with Abraham's servants and they just the, 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 the property got too large, the herds were, were intermingling, the herdsmen were fighting. And, and really, Abraham was a bit slow to obey because Abraham was told to leave his family and go to the land that God showed him. And he didn't leave all his family, he brought along a nephew. And um, not until he separated from that nephew does then God reconfirm the Abrahamic covenant. And it's curious to me how this happens. So they decide to separate, and they separate, and where does Lot go? Well, Sodom and Gomorrah sounds like a fun place to go, <laughs> and that's where Lot ends up, all right? Lot ends up in Sodom and, uh, you know, raises a family and does what he does. 
And uh, that's the consequences now. And you'll see that here in, uh, in, uh, at the end of Genesis 13. So it came about then in Genesis 14, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kederleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. All right? There's going to be a quiz on these four names. So, no. Um, these four kings that they made war with, and here's five more names, Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Admah, Shemember, no, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and uh, the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All right, so there's four kings are coming to attack five kings. It's, it's nine kings altogether. And these uh, came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. And uh, the reason why is because they were in rebellion, that Sodom and Gomorrah and these other cities decided they weren't going to pay their tribute any longer. And so, uh, well, there's consequences for defying your, your overlord. And uh, Keter Leomer uh, is the one they were serving, and uh, then they rebelled. So for 12 years they served Keter Leomer, and uh, the 13th year they rebelled. And this is fascinating history too, by the way. If you ever want to study it in archaeology, and a lot of the historians have really disputed, um, there's been some bad identification of these kings that really has led to some discrediting of the biblical record. But I think there's been some better uh, recognition of these kings. And uh, even today there remains some question as far as some of these in any event. Um, in the 14th year, Keter and the Omer and the kings that were with him, they came and they defeated. Notice who they defeat. The Rephaim. You know that term? That's a Nephilim term. That's a Nephilim term of giants. And the Zuzim, do you know that term? It's another Rephaim term in Ham. And the Emim, you know that term? All of these are terms for Nephilim, for giants in the Ammonite language, the Moabite language, the uh, Amorite language. And these giants are being crushed and, and uh, so forth. And then the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in uh, Hazazon Tamar. And now, okay, so if all that stuff bores you to tears, I think it's marvelous because I think it's actually the presence of those Nephilim, the presence of those giants that actually encourages the, the rebellion. It encourages Sodom and Gomorrah to think, eh, we can get away with not paying our tribute. Uh, Keter Leomer, he's got bigger fish to fry, right? He's got other things to worry about. He's going to you know, we're okay because those giants are there and we're, we're in a pretty good spot. Well, until Keter Leomer teams up with these other three kings and the four of them come together in this alliance and they just start whooping everybody, including all these giants. All right. In any event, um, now they're going to turn to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the battle happens here. Um, so in verse 8, the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Admah and the king of uh, Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, they came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim against, those are the four guys, all right, four against five. Now in the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and they fell into them. But those who survived fled into the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. That's what happens when you lose the war. You lose the war, you lose your stuff, okay? And uh, victorious armies tend to be plundering armies. And to the victory go the spoils and you get conquered and you get plundered and you get, it's just bad, okay? Bad for the women and children in particular that get ravaged and, you know, ravished and plundered and, and, and sold into slavery and, and all the things there, okay? This is in the ancient world. The American army does no plundering. I want to be clear on that. All right. So the uh, plundering that happens. Well, wouldn't you know it, lo and behold, coincidence of all coincidences, um, Lot and his family were part of the plunder there. So um, 
in all of the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the food supply and all the stuff, they also took Lot, Abraham's nephew, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Okay? And all of that history sets up the table for Melchizedek. Because all of that history sets up the circumstances in which Lot finds himself a captive, being hauled away to, by Kuterleomer. And thankfully for Lot, Lot's got an uncle <laughs> named Abraham, who's a prophet, who's a mighty man of valor, who's going to lead out his own personally trained men. And what five kings couldn't do in attacking four kings, Abraham and his household do. This is extraordinary. This is, this is, I think this is a greater miracle than David and Goliath when it comes right down to it. It's not just, you know, one little shrimp David against one giant Goliath. This is Abraham and his household servants going after four kings that had just defeated all the Nephilim, had just defeated five kings of, of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and those guys. And uh, here comes Abraham. So a fugitive came and told Abraham the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner. These were allies with Abram. Remember, he owns this land. God promised it to him, but he still is living there as a stranger. He's living there as a pilgrim. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. 318. By the way, you are wise if you defend your household. You are wise if in defense of your household you have armaments and that you should be well-trained in the use of those armaments. And uh, this is the pattern we have here. Abraham and his men, and they're well-trained, 318. They went in pursuit as far as Dan. Divided his forces against them by night. So if you think, okay, it's 318 of us, and... We're going up against four kings and their armies. What do we do? Well, we attack at night. We divide them. We divide up. Divide up his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them. Pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So from Dan to Hobah, you can do some map work on that. The pursuit was something else. And uh, he brought back all the goods also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, also the women and the people. Then after, and so that sets the stage. All of that is summarized in Hebrews 7 by after the slaughter of the kings. Melchizedek met him. Okay, So here's the, the backstory that comes with that. Then after his return from the defeat of Kederleomer and the kings who were with him. Now, Maybe we want more detail. Maybe we want the, the high-definition you know, uh, DVD replay on this. Um, because it's called a slaughter in Hebrews. Here it's called a defeat. I think in the, in the attack, he divided his forces and they went after the, the kings. They successfully assassinated all four of those kings. They threw those armies into confusion and disarray. And they fled. They abandoned their plunder to flee. To, to flee. And then they chased after him in the, in the uh, thing. All right. It's kind of fun when you're chasing after people that are running away from you, all right? Like in Desert Storm when the Air Force just bombed the smithereens out of the Iraqis. And by the time the ground forces crossed over, 30 days later, it was just, you know, crazy. They'd been, they were shell-shocked. They were bombed into deafness and, and uh, pretty, uh, pretty decimated by the time we started going at them on the ground. All right. So after his return from the defeat of Kederleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah. So he comes out of his hiding hole. And it seems that uh, it was only the two out of the five kings that survived. But anyway, um, this guy's still alive. And uh, so he comes out to meet Abraham at the valley of Shavah. That is the king's valley. And uh, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Now, does that seem abrupt? Does that seem awkward? Does that seem it's designed to be abrupt? It's designed to be awkward. It is written this way. It's a marvelous piece of literature. And it is specifically written that way, that for 17 verses and naming nine other kings redundantly and repeatedly and 
so forth, no mention is made of Melchizedek at all until verse 18. Well, where was he the whole time? Why wasn't he mentioned? Why wasn't he attacking giants? Why wasn't he, you know, whose side was he on in that? Why was he, you know, whose side was he on? He was not connected with any of these. Completely separate from all these other narratives, all these other backstories. And just pops in out of nowhere. All of a sudden, here he is. Melchizedek, king of Salem. Salem is a shortened form, by the way, of Jerusalem. Okay, Same city, it's just a shortened form. It's Jerusalem without the Jeru. It's just Salem. It's the, key, it's the, uh, it's, uh, the same place. All right. And it's curious, uh, when the king of Sodom comes out in verse 17, what does he have in his hand? Nothing. <laughs> he brings nothing whatsoever. He contributes nothing to the process. As a matter of fact, he's kind of got his hand out because he wants to get his plunder back. A lot of the stuff Abraham's coming back with is his, right? Because there was plunder from Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three places, okay? And, uh, and if only two of the five are still alive, then maybe Sodom can score more than his own plunder even. Um, and he's willing to give a, a cut. He's willing to give a, a kickback to Abraham. How gracious of him since Abraham has all of it anyway in, uh, <laughs> in the plunder. All right. So he comes with empty hands. Melchizedek comes with bread and wine. Why are they having communion before the church age? This is curious to me. Isn't this curious? And it's not explained. It's not explained in Genesis or Psalms or anywhere until we get to Hebrews 7. Then we get a discourse on Melchizedek. But Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of El Elyon, God most high. He is both a king and a priest. That's unique. That's different. That's unlike Sodom was not a priest king. Gomorrah wasn't a priest king. Keterleomer wasn't a priest king. But Melchizedek was a king priest. And he blessed him. That is, Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, blessed be Abram, God of Mo- uh, Abraham of God most high of El Elyon. He is Abraham of El Elyon. Same God. This is not, this is, it's a, it's a unique name for God. It's marvelous. It's used mostly in a Gentile context. The Most High God. Typically uh, Israel will refer to him as Yahweh or not even say that name or call him Elohim or call him the, the Elohim of Israel. And yes, he is the, the Most High God. But that seems to be, El Elyon seems to be a uh, a title in a primarily Gentile context such as here. So blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So he blesses Abraham and then he blesses El Elyon. He blesses God most high. It's a dual blessing. And so Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Abraham paid a tenth to Melchizedek. And he gave him... Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. Abraham receive, or Melchizedek receives a tithe. That's going to be significant when we talk about the tithing that Levi was entitled to. Levi is entitled to a tithe from all the other tribes of Israel. And yet Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. The, the uh, greater is served by the lesser. That's a, that's a principle we're going to get coming up here in Hebrews. He gave him a tenth of all. So the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. I just want my people back. I'm going to stay king. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord, and here we have Yahweh, God most high. El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. So if the things I think I have, the things you think you have, the things we fight about, who wants what, God's got it all. God is the possessor of heaven and earth. And what he delegates and what he assigns, that's his business. I have sworn to Yahweh, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. 
He wants nothing that's stamped made in Sodom, right? Nothing that's that has any kind of identification with Sodom and Gomorrah. Not not a not a nickel. Nothing. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten, the share of the men who went with me. I'm going to pay some per diem here to my troops. Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their share. You know, they're allies, they're entitled. So they can take their cut, but Abraham's not taking a nickel. And there you have it. All right, that's the end of chapter 14. And really, um, we want, uh, we want you know, go away, king of Sodom. I'm going to go back here and, and have more fellowship with Melchizedek. Let's talk doctrine with Melchizedek. Let's, uh, as long as we have the bread and wine going here, let's fellowship over El Elyon and the truth of the Word of God. But the chapter is over, Melchizedek's gone. He's just, he arrives and he goes. That's how it's written. That's the narrative. And as literature goes, it's designed this way on purpose. And Hebrews is going to unfold that for us when we look at Hebrews chapter 7. All right, so the context for this, Abraham was returning from the slaughter of the kings. Abraham was returning from the slaughter of the kings. And it's imagery that's historically fulfilled in Genesis 14 it's curious how some of the language is echoed in Isaiah. Isaiah 41. There's no mention of Melchizedek in Isaiah. There's no mention of, uh, but you'll see the echo of the term here. Abraham was returning from the slaughter of the kings. Technically, he's still named Abram. I'm calling him Abraham consistently through this slideshow, but he doesn't get the name of Abraham until chapter 17. So anyway, Abram, Abraham, same guy. He was returning from this slaughter. And it's, uh, it's interesting how uh, that language echoes prophecy. And it echoes what God does when God's hand is on human events to bring about the results that he wants for the shaping of human history. So do you recall this from our, from our Isaiah series? Coastlands, listen to me in silence and let the peoples gain new strength. That's, of course, a follow-up to how chapter 40 ended. Um, let them come forward, then let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. Who has aroused one from the east whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword, as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. This is when God's purpose is at work. And he, usher, he, he utters a call. And he calls a man of his choice. And this guy goes forth to battle. And man, he can't lose. There is no way. This guy just cannot lose. Why not? Because Yahweh is going before him. Yahweh is the one who has called him and has directed this course of events and so uh, he pursues them passing on in safety by a way he had not been traversing with his feet who has performed and accomplished it calling forth the generations from the beginning i am the lord i am the first i am with the last i am he and so we actually have here we have uh, in isaiah we have prophecies that apply to cyrus prophecies that, that refer to Persia and how Persia will be uh, a tool in God's hand for redeeming uh, the Jewish people and letting them return back from their captivity. We have messianic prophecies of the Christ and what Jesus is going to do in second advent when he conquers. When God has his hand on human events and he's directing these things, you just can't lose. Abraham can grab 18 men or 318 men and go attack four kings and have a complete slaughter like shooting fish in a barrel, right? I mean, it's just, you can't lose. They're going to die because God is on your side. And that's what this is about. And so after a slaughter, after a military victory, after a great triumph, what, what follows? Well, if you're saved and you have divine viewpoint, well, let me see, okay, start over. You have a great temporal life achievement, a tremendous conquest, a tremendous victory. What follows then? If you're an unbeliever, 
What follows is your own party, your own celebration, your own hooray for me, right? Great, you know, great things Bob has done. Let's celebrate the greatness of Bob. Let's build a monument for this victory. (laughs) If you're a believer, you have communion and you give Jesus Christ the glory. If you're a believer, you fellowship over what God's doing. Maybe you conduct a prayer meeting. Maybe you come together and you worship God. You give God the praise for what God has done. And so Melchizedek and Abraham were able to fellowship over what God has done. King of Sodom shows up and he just wants to, you know, divvy up the plunder and, and, and he wants to make Abraham rich. You know, th- you know, I don't blame him. He's a smart Gentile king. He's not a dummy. He, uh, you know, he doesn't have to pay tribute to Keter Leomer anymore, but he's kind of scared about this Abraham guy. Okay? So is this not a bribe to get Abraham on his good side? You know, if you're if you're a pagan king and you just saw what Abraham just did, you can imagine. Anyway, the politics never stops as far as these unbelievers are concerned. So, returning from the slaughter of the kings, that's the context. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and then Melchizedek blessed El Elyon. El Elyon. You have the, the doubling of El. El is God, and then Elion is the God of gods. God and God Most High. El and El Elion. And so it's a double blessing. Because Abraham is the servant of El Elion. So by blessing Abraham, he's blessing El Elion. Right? When you curse a brother or sister in Christ, you're cursing Christ. When you bless a brother and sister of Christ, you're blessing Christ. Here's Melchizedek blessing Abraham of El Elyon and in turn blessing El Elyon. Now, um, we might save some time by not looking at all these references, but uh, I think they're useful related to where you find these references to God Most High. Typically, you're going to find them in a Gentile context. And that's why when you see it in Isaiah 14 with Satan and his five I wills, when you see it in Daniel 4 with Nebuchadnezzar, and his uh, boastful pride, when you see it in Daniel 7, uh, these are Gentile contexts, Babylonian contexts in Isaiah and in Daniel. In Psalm 82, it's more angelic, and in Psalm 83, it's more angelic. Even in Deuteronomy 32, it's more angelic. So um, we've already seen Genesis 14. I won't give a lot of discourse on these texts, but we should see them at least. Numbers 24, 16. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Because who's the character in Numbers 22, 23, 24? What do you think of when you think Numbers 22, 23, 24? You're thinking Balaam. You're thinking the talking donkey. You're thinking a Gentile context whereby the king of, of uh, Moab is, is trying to get, um, Balak is trying to get Balaam to curse Israel. And he can't do it. And so again, it's a Gentile context on this. He took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of El Elyon, who sees the vision of, I think it's this El Shaddai, the Almighty, falling down yet having his eyes uncovered. Anyway, rather than cursing Israel, he's going to bless Israel. <laughs> and the king is, uh, you know, Balak gets pretty upset because he's paying top dollar for the best curse imaginable. And uh, he hired the best prophet you could hire. Balaam, I call him the for-profit prophet. And uh, he does what he does to make the money he can get. And uh, Yahweh says, no, this is my people. You cannot curse whom I have blessed. And so that's the uh, the El Elyon reference there. Deuteronomy 32.8. The Song of Moses. Gentile context. 32 7 says, Remember the days of old, consider the years of all generations. Ask your father, he will inform you. Your elders, they will tell you. When El Elyon gave the nations their inheritance. Keep in mind, Israel is not the only nation with an inheritance. Every nation has an inheritance. 
It's just that Israel is Yahweh's nation. Israel is the firstborn of all the nations, and they have the preeminence over the Gentile nations. But El Elyon has given every nation an inheritance. Every nation has boundaries, a land grant. Every nation has an eternal destiny. When, he, when El Elyon separated the sons of man, remember the table of nations, Genesis 10? 70 divisions of humanity, well, three broad divisions in Ham, Shem, and Japheth, but 70 primary divisions amongst those uh, three. And those 70 nations are apparently according to the number of the sons of God or sons of Israel, depending on what manuscripts you like there for Deuteronomy 32.8. But it's El Elyon that gives the Gentile nations their land-grant inheritance. El Elyon is the one doing that. Not Yahweh, El Elyon. Okay. Psalm 82.6. See, when God has so many titles... It becomes uh, important for us to realize why is he using this, ti- this title in this context? You know, why is he using... It's the same God, regardless of what title he's using, you know. But when God shows up in your life, do you want him to show up and introduce himself as Yahweh uh, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide? That'd be nice. Or if he shows up in your life as Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our healer? Okay, yeah, that's good. But when, how about Yahweh Tzavayoth, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord God of the armies. When he, when he interacts in your life and introduces himself with that name, oh, that's a, that's a combat name. You probably are here for a military purpose. <laughs> this may not be as pleasant as if you would have arrived and said, uh, you know, Jehovah Jireh here, you know, how can I provide for you? So what, the different names, they're They're powerful. When, when Yahweh arrives and announces himself, the name that he announces himself with is significant because he has so many. And more often than not, in fact, all these ones we're looking at, El Elyon here tends to be in a Gentile context or in a rebuke of spirit beings in an, in an angelic context. And so um, he's rebuking these guys. They're actually falling short. Psalm 82, God takes a stand in, in His own congregation. Is that the congregation of the church? No. Is that the congregation of Israel? No. This is God's own congregation. This is a heavenly council in the heavenly places. He judges in the midst of the rulers. Yeah, that's not Austin Bible Church in Psalm 82. One, okay? We're a different kind of assembly in the church age. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. See, these angels are falling short and he's calling them on it. They do not know nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods. All of you are sons of the Most High. This is a rebuke to the B'nai Ha Elohim, the sons of God in the angelic realm. This is before Abraham, before Adam. This is before humanity. And they're being rebuked. This is in the, in the context of Satan's original fall. They're being rebuked. The celestial spirit beings are falling short on the job and the earthly, the terrestrial uh, angelic beings are suffering for it. Nevertheless, you will die like men. Okay? You can't tell a human being that he's going to die like a human being. But you can tell something that's not a human being, that they will die like a human being, and that has an impact. Jesus used this passage too, by the way. When the Pharisees were upset that he was calling himself the Son of God, he was like, really? That bothers you? Then what do you do with this passage that says you are gods? If he spoke to them that were not God and called them gods, Jesus was like, you know, how do you like me now? What do you do with that verse? And so, uh, nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth. It is you who possesses, that's the possessor of heaven and earth, he possesses the nations. But you are gods, you are all sons of who? El Elyon. You are all sons of El Elyon, God Most High. God Most High. Context there. Next, next Psalm over, Psalm 83. 
And uh, <laughs> this is the fun one when we can talk about Oreb and Zeba. I love these guys. So verse 9 says, Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jamin at the torrent of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground. You know, he made your enemies fertilizer. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, like the flame that sets the mountains on fire. Pursue them with her tempest, terrify them with her storm, fill their faces with dishonor, that they may seek your name, O God. It might be, it takes that kind of adversity to wake up some folks to pay attention to who God is. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever. Let them be humiliated and perish that they may know that you alone, whose name is Yahweh, you alone are El Elyon over all the earth. So Yahweh is El Elyon, but the Gentiles need to know that. Isaiah 14, 14, Satan and his five I wills. This is Hillel ben Shachar probably the closest thing to Robert we have anywhere in the Bible. I keep looking. There's no Bobs anywhere in the Bible. But the uh, Teutonic name of Robert means bright in fame, and the Hebrew equivalent is Hillel. Hillel ben Shachar, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. Put it into Latin and it becomes Lucifer. I'll stick with the Teutonic all right. Star of the morning, son of the dawn, you've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. That assembly we just read about in, in uh, Psalm 82, the divine council of the heavenlies. He wanted a seat at that assembly, he was not entitled to it. In the recesses of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like El Elyon. I will make myself, the fifth of the five I wills is I will make myself like El Elyon, the most high God. And then, of course, the book of Daniel, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the Gentile, is trying to figure out why uh, the, the fiery furnace doesn't work or the... the uh, who is this God of uh, Daniel? And even uh, with the statue dream, even with the fear of God that he developed in chapter 2, I don't believe he gets saved at the end of chapter 2. He does have a a reverence. He does give homage to Daniel. He does say at the end of chapter 2, your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings, but he's not ready to embrace that God yet for himself. He still calls it Daniel's God, your God. And he said, uh, so he praises Daniel's God, but he doesn't accept, he doesn't get saved at the end of chapter 2. The uh, fiery furnace, though, changes things. And at the end of chapter 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the fourth man in the fire, uh, that does it. That's, that's enough for, for Nebuchadnezzar, who confesses his salvation at uh, the first part here of chapter 4. And, and who does he get saved with? As he says here, the Most High God. The Most High God in Daniel 4. So uh, I'm not sure why I didn't put 4.2 on the slideshow. It should have been. I, I, there's a reference to Most High God before you get to 4.17. But uh, for uh, the beginning of Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language. Now who does God want to save? Who does God want to have with him in eternity? Believers from every peoples, nation, tribe, and tongue. And that comes up again and again and again in, throughout Revelation. Peoples, nations, men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which El Elyon has done for me. Now he's personalizing it. Now he's accepting it. Now he's not just amazed at what Daniel's God could do for Daniel or what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God could do for them. He's now embracing and accepting it personally. 
It has seemed good to me to declare what he's done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. He's got an understanding of El Elyon and what the kingdom of heaven is all about. He's a believer now, which is why, by the way, as a believer, he's now subject to divine discipline. He is now subject to the love of a father that's going to correct the arrogance of a son. The father wouldn't have taken the time to correct the arrogance of the Nebuchadnezzar from chapter 2 or the Nebuchadnezzar from chapter 3. But when the Nebuchadnezzar of chapter 4 starts to walk on his roof and get full of himself, he's now a believer and he's got a loving father that says, hey pal, that's got to stop. And he rebukes his son as a loving father rebukes a son. And so you can read through the the details on that um, as Nebuchadnezzar's walking around on his roof. Don't walk on your roof. I don't know why this is. David got in trouble. Nebuchadnezzar gets in trouble. All these guys up on their roof. I've told my deacons, keep me off the roof. I don't want it. That's that's insane. And uh, when the judgment comes and the rebuke comes, He's going to lose his mind. He's going to be given the mind of an animal. He's going to have to live for seven years as a beast until he can digest the doctrine. And so in verse 17, the sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers. The decision is a command of the holy ones, that divine counsel we saw in Psalm 82. In order that the living may know that El Elyon is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. That kind of removes our pride at the ballot box, doesn't it? Because we get who we get. We get who El Elyon gives us. And if he gives us, uh, you know, a guy for four years or a guy for eight years, El Elyon knows what he's doing when the sovereign hand of God is on our nation. And if he sets over it the lowliest of men, the basest of men, is what King James says, well, we get what he's given us to either bless us or curse us, to humble us in some ways. All right. That's El Elyon. That's his good business. And uh, same thing in verse 24 and 25. This is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree that El Elyon... Uh, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you be driven away from mankind, your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, that you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that El Elyon is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. I think this is also unique in human history in that a pagan king can go insane for seven years and still have a kingdom to come back to when he wakes up. You know, any other setting, there would have been a prince or a general or a, some other assassin would have, uh, you know, gone out in the backyard and put the, put the king down, you know, and said, hey, I'm the king now. But Daniel, I believe, humbly served as a steward and uh, did not allow the king to be harmed until the end of that time. So that's 24 and 25 and then 32 and 34 when Nebuchadnezzar learns his lesson kind of wraps up here. Um, So when he gets his mind back, in verse 34, at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My reason returned to me. Remember, you got to love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, mind, soul, and strength. And with this reason, having been humbled long enough, I blessed El Elyon and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And there you have it. All right. Um, man, chapter 7. There's a vision here. And um, it was quite alarming. He kept having these uh, visions through the night. It continued, it continued, it continued. He kept looking, he kept looking. Uh, Thrones were set up. The Ancient of Days took his seat. He kept looking. Here comes the Son of Man in verse 13 who comes and presents himself before the Ancient of Days. Then in verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. The visions in my mind kept alarming me. 
So I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. You gotta love Daniel in the middle of his dream. He just grabs a random angel and says, hey, I got questions. (laughs) Explain this to me. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things about these great beasts, four in number, not five, four. Rome is the fourth and Rome is the last until the kingdom of heaven comes. But the saints of El Elyon, the saints of the highest one, will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. The saints of El Elyon, the set-apart ones of El Elyon. Verse 22, the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of El Elyon. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. The saints of El Elyon not the bride of Christ. Keep your dispensation straight. Verse 25, he, uh, Antichrist will speak out against El Elyon and will wear down the saints of El Elyon and will intend to make alterations in times and in law and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Antichrist will be dedicated to the extermination of the Jewish people, not the church. Church is raptured before the tribulation begins. But the court will sit for judgment. His dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven, uh, the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the of El Elyon. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. It's a Jewish kingdom. And all the dominions will serve and obey him. And at this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming. My face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. What's he going to do? Go tell Belteshazzar about it? Nebuchadnezzar is long with the Lord now. He can't fellowship with his doctrine over with Nebuchadnezzar. Anyway, El Elyon. Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek. Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek. Now we just get introduced to this here in verse 1, but it comes back again and again and again and again again and again and again and again in chapter 7. Verse 1, verse 4, verse 6, verse 9, verse 10. So in verse 1 or verse 2, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. In verse 4, observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. He gets a tenth. He gets a tithe. Verse uh, 6. One whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. It's not the Melchizedek covenant. It's the Abrahamic covenant. But Melchizedek comes to bless Abraham of El Elyon. And Abraham pays the tithe to Melchizedek, the king uh, priest of El Elyon. And he paid the tenth. In verse 9, he pays the tenth. And so to speak, so to, if you think about it this way, so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. That's the point. In the Levitical priesthood, Levi gets the tithes. But Levi was in the loins of Abraham when Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. That's verse 10. He was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So the one that normally receives tithes actually paid the tithe to Melchizedek. And that order is significant. That exalts the Melchizedek priesthood in supremacy over the Levitical priesthood. All right. So that will come up again and again and again. Um, goodness, next week we'll have to finish this um, because the whole thing about without father, without mother, uh, without genealogy, um, this has been, this has sparked a lot of legends and a lot of creative things uh, since going back to the church fathers. Going back to the early church fathers, they would write about this. They would create these legends. Uh, even before the church fathers, a lot of the Jewish traditions would create legends, for example, that this was actually Shem the descendant of, of Noah after the ark and centuries later. Uh, I don't think the timing is right. I don't accept that this is Shem. At one point, I think I 
speculated or taught that it was, it was possible. I no longer think that it's possible. This is not Shem. Uh, nor is this a Christophany. This is not Jesus in the flesh. Jesus does not uh, come in the flesh until the manger. All right? Jesus does not serve as a king until he's seated on the Davidic throne. This is not Jesus. Melchizedek is not Jesus. But there's a lot of legends that came about in the, in the church fathers and in, into medieval uh, theology and on into Reformation theology. And even to this day, uh, by the way, Doug will tell you this, anyone else that ever came out of Mormonism, the Melchizedek priesthood is a big deal to Mormonism. And all of the, the, the Antichrist lies of the Book of Mormon that, uh, that create Mormon theology are centered in what they call the Melchizedek priesthood that has nothing to do with what we're going to be learning in, uh, in the coming weeks. So stay tuned for that. We'll deal with that. So we'll talk about no father, no mother, no beginning of days, no end of life, uh, what, how that is applied, not literally but literarily, how it was applied in the narrative of the text to teach the doctrine that is designed to teach for us in the, uh, in the church age. Father, uh, thank you for this time. And it just goes by so quickly. Uh, and Father, we covered a lot of ground. We covered a lot of context, uh, a lot of the history. I pray that we don't lose focus on the doctrine uh, while we keep our, fix our bearings on the, the, uh, the isagogics. But Father, we want to be clear that uh, this is the moment the, the greatest military victory that Abraham, that we were told about Abraham ever having. And yet for him, it was the privilege and blessing to pay a tithe to Melchizedek, the king priest. And uh, what a thrill it was for Abraham. Abraham was longing to see the arrival of Jesus and he never saw the arrival of Jesus, but he paid a tithe to Melchizedek, the king priest. And uh, they had a fellowship on that day. And uh, so, Father, teach us what this is about. Open our eyes, our eyes to see who we are in Christ with our, the access that we have in the Melchizedek priesthood you've blessed us with. Uh, open our eyes to these things that we might live them out day by day. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.